Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. This is the second episode where I have a cold voice. Hopefully I kick the bug soon. I gave a trivia question last time, which in my opinion was a tough one. Originally the Book of Mormon had longer chapters and did not even have numbered verses. So in 1879, at the request of the Quorum of the Twelve, Orson Pratt divided the original Book of Mormon into the smaller chapters and numbered verses that we have today. So the question was, which was the longest chapter in the original Book of Mormon? Was it Jacob 5 like it is now, or was it a different one? So, the longest chapter in the original Book of Mormon was 1 Nephi chapter 3. In 1879, when Orson Pratt was dividing up the chapters, he divided chapter 3 into five chapters. They became 1 Nephi chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Basically, it was Nephi's dream all in a single chapter. Those five chapters combined for about 153 verses and they take up 14 or 15 pages. By comparison, Jacob 5 has only 77 verses. Although in the original version, Jacob chapters 4 and 5 were a single chapter, which if you add up the verses, would have been 95 verses long. So still quite a bit short of the 153 in 1st Nephi 3. Also, reading a chapter per day in the original Book of Mormon would have been a bigger undertaking than it is now. There are 240 chapters in our modern version and there were only 115 in the original. If you've got any suggestions for future trivia questions, email them to me at bomjourney at gmail.com and I'll see if I can use them in an upcoming episode. Today we're covering Jacob chapters 5 through 7. Jacob 4 ended with Jacob describing the Jews rejecting the Savior who was the only sure foundation upon which they could build. And Jacob asked the question, quote, And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? He then introduced the allegory of the olive tree. Still in Jacob 4, verse 18, Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you, if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. The allegory of the olive tree was originally written by an Old Testament era prophet named Zenos. We only know about him through the Book of Mormon. He's mentioned in 12 different verses. Jacob 5 is an allegory which is defined as, quote, a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. The allegory of the olive tree is a story of a man caring for an olive tree in his vineyard, and it symbolically tells the story of the scattering and gathering of the house of Israel. Now, you might be wondering, like I was, why was this man growing olive trees in a vineyard? Wouldn't it have been called an olive tree orchard or something like that? So I did some quick investigating online and found that in the Eastern Mediterranean, it was standard practice to grow olive trees in vineyards. They require similar conditions, and apparently the olive trees served as the trellis or the support 
for the vines. Did you know that? I didn't. Zenos did though, or if you think that Joseph Smith invented the Book of Mormon, somehow Joseph Smith knew that. The allegory talks about this man trying to save his vineyard so he can get fruit from the trees. It includes a lot of grafting. So I looked up grafting of olive trees. I found a lot of good information, which, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes, but here's a quick sample, which may be helpful in understanding the story. What are some reasons for grafting? It says, some trees have very desirable fruit characteristics and weak roots. Others have strong roots, but small or no fruit. Grafting can combine the strong roots and good fruit into the same tree. Then it talks about grafting methods, which I won't go into. And then there's a, a section on tree strength. Grafted olives are often weaker than trees started from cuttings. This can be because of a weak graft union in which the cambium of the two varieties did not completely fuse together. It can also be because nutrients and sap cannot completely cross from one variety to the other. Wild olives are often used as the rootstock. Did you know all of that? I didn't until I went online and looked it up. Joseph Smith didn't have the internet or even a public library, so if you want to claim that he wrote the Book of Mormon, you need to explain how he had a seemingly expert understanding of Middle Eastern olive grafting and pruning practices. And if he didn't write the book, who did and why did they write it? I looked up where olives grew in the U.S. and found that they're grown in California, Texas, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, Alabama, Hawaii. Are you seeing a pattern in the climate? The, the odds of stumbling across an olive garden expert in New England in the 1820s would have been pretty slim. Now, this isn't conclusive proof, but the allegory of the olive tree is at least one piece of fairly strong evidence that the Book of Mormon was not Joseph Smith's invention. Okay, the chapter begins with a man raising an olive tree in his vineyard, and, quote, it grew and waxed old and began to decay. So he started pruning, digging, and nourishing it, hoping to get some new branches. He succeeded, quote, somewhat a little, and the tree grew some new small branches, but the main top began to die. So our protagonist worked with a servant, and he instructed him to remove the main top of the tree and graft wild olive branches into the main tree to keep it alive. Then the Lord removed the new small branches and grafted them elsewhere in the garden. Specifically, he grafted them whithersoever he would, some in one place, some in another place. Time passed, and the master and servant returned to see how things were progressing in the vineyard. They visited the original roots and found the newly grafted wild branches bearing fruit which was good, like the original fruit. Pleased at seeing this, the Lord suggested that they visit the natural branches that he had transplanted elsewhere to see how they were doing. He had transplanted them to the, quote, nethermost part of the vineyard. I used to think that that meant northernmost, but I looked it up and nethermost means lowest in position. For example, the nethermost part of the ocean would be its floor, and the word Netherlands means lower countries, because a lot of the Netherlands sits below sea level. They visited the first natural branch, transported to the nethermost parts of the vineyard, and found it to be flourishing. The servant asked, paraphrasing, why here? This is the poorest spot in the whole garden. To which the Lord responded, I knew it was a poor spot, so I nourished it for a long time, and you can see the results. He showed his servant the second natural branch in an even worse spot than the first, but it was thriving too. 
Finally, he showed him the third transplanted branch, and that was also prospering. Then he asked a servant to take a second look at this last transplanted branch. He had prepared and nursed the spot the third branch was growing in for a long time. But unlike the others, it had been placed in, quote, a good spot of ground. This tree had grown two types of fruit. One was tame and the other was wild. It's worth pausing for a minute to talk about what all this means. So far in the allegory, we've seen the Lord's covenant people, or house of Israel, represented by the original olive tree. The Lord scattered them into various parts of the vineyard. Two were considered poor spots of ground, but the people thrived. One was considered a good spot of ground and had mixed results. Transplanting the first two natural branches is often considered to represent the scattering of the ten tribes. The last natural branch appeared to be Lehi's group because they went to a very good spot of ground and, well, then they split into two groups, one good and the other bad. Later in the chapter, the Lord described it as the most choice spot in the entire vineyard. He further said that he had cut down a previous tree, perhaps that's symbolic of him removing the Jaredites, to plant this new branch there. This made me wonder what makes a spot of ground good or poor, or an even broader question is what the ground represents. I am not sure if the earth represents the land's natural resources or if it refers, as it does in the parable of the sower, to how receptive the people are to the gospel or or if it refers to how prosperous the people will be who live there, I assume it at least includes opportunities for temporal success because the promised land of the Book of Mormon is considered choice above all other lands and frequently references prosperity. If you've got thoughts on that or an opinion on what the earth or soil might represent, I'd love to hear about it in the comments. Returning to the allegory though, after finding that the vineyard was doing well, the master and servant retired for a long time and then visited the vineyard again. They first visited the original rootstock, which last time they looked at it was growing a lot of good food, but now they found it populated with all kinds of fruit, but none of it good. But as the servant pointed out, the wild olive branches had successfully strengthened the original roots. So the roots were still good, but the master said the tree and the roots were worthless to him if the fruit growing on them was bad. A visit to the grafted branches showed that they had all become corrupt. Some compared this to the apostasy. In the third group, representing Lehi's posterity, the bad branch had overcome the good branch, causing it to wither away and die. At this point, the master of the vineyard wept and said his vineyard had no worth and should be cast into the fire. He asked what more he could have done. Who had corrupted his vineyard? The servant suggested that maybe the branches might have grown too quickly, more quickly than the roots could support. And some people have interpreted that to mean that a cause of the apostasy in the primitive church was a lack of communication, which led to the inability of the church leaders to maintain communication needed to guide the quickly growing branches of the church that were scattered around. And these branches eventually went in independent directions. The servant persuaded his master to spare the vineyard a little longer before casting it into the fire. And the master agreed because he didn't want to lose the trees in his vineyard. He decided to gather all the original branches he had grafted elsewhere in the vineyard and graft them back into the original tree, removing the most bitter branches from the original tree to make room for transplants. Quote, go to and call servants, he said. 
that they may labor in the vineyard this last time. He instructed them to tend, nourish, dung, and prune the tree. As the good branches grew, he urged them to clear away the bad and to keep the root and top equal in strength. Servants came. They obeyed what the Lord said. The Lord labored with them, and the natural fruit began to reappear. The bad fruit they cast away. When the Lord saw that the tree was growing natural fruit, he rejoiced. He announced that this was the last time he would nourish, prune, and dung his vineyard. He would harvest the fruit and then burn the vineyard. So that's the olive tree allegory in a nutshell. We barely scratched the surface. People have written lengthy academic volumes on the symbolism of this chapter. So if you want to dig into it further, you'll have a lot of material to work with. In Jacob chapter 6, Jacob testified that the events that the olive tree allegory represented in the previous chapter would undoubtedly happen. The Lord's servants would go forth in his power to tend the vineyard, and after that, the end was nigh, and the Lord would burn the world with fire. He praised God's mercy for caring for Israel, both root and branch, and for reaching continuously out to save us if we'll let him. He pled to his people to turn unto the Savior, and he ended by pleading, O be wise, what can I say more? Now we move to chapter 7. We meet Sherem in this chapter, and he's the first of three antichrists that we'll meet in the Book of Mormon. Sherem traveled around preaching with flattering speech that there would be no Christ. He labored hard and convinced many people, but his real target was Jacob. Jacob explained this in verse 5. And he had hoped to shake me from the faith, notwithstanding the many revelations and the many things which I had seen concerning these things. For I truly had seen angels, and they had ministered unto me. And also I had heard the voice of the Lord speaking unto me in very word from time to time, wherefore I could not be shaken. Jacob tells us a few things about Sherem that I find interesting. First, Sherem was learned and, quote, had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. Not much time had passed since Lehi's group came to the Americas. In fact, Jacob was on the original boat. 50, 60, 70 years, that's barely enough time for people to, to develop accents. So if the Nephites and Lamanites were the sole occupants of the Americas, wouldn't Sherem have unavoidably been Jacob's nephew or a similarly close relation? And wouldn't they have all lived together and learned to speak roughly equally well? But it reads as though Sherem was an outsider who learned their language and used this learning to convince them of their erroneous ways. Context clues tell us that Sherem had not met Jacob. If there were 30 people on the original ship, within Jacob's lifetime, this population might have grown to a few hundred, with the majority of those being small children. But, but that group divided in two, and if we include only Nephites, those numbers would have been so few that everyone would have known everyone else, unless Sherem was from an outside group. We talked about that in 2 Nephi 1, if you want to go look into it. Although they don't mention it explicitly, we get a lot of hints that the Americas were not empty when Lehi's group arrived. But wherever Sherem was from, he advocated keeping the law of Moses, or at least he pretended to. And he accused Jacob of misdirecting people to worship Christ, of being not expected for several hundred years. He asked Jacob to give him a sign, so Jacob prayed for God to smite Sherem as the requested sign. And Sherem was smitten. But before Sherem died, he gathered the people around and plainly, quote, confessed the Christ, and then he died. Sherem's death restored the peace, and the people again began to search the scriptures, 
which implies that the people were literate and had access to prophetic writings, which shouldn't be surprising because that's why Nephi wrote the small plates. Sometimes I feel like I'm focusing on the wrong things, looking for clues in the Book of Mormon about their circumstances and what life was like for them. I, I do it mostly because I'm just trying to make the scriptures more real and more applicable to me, but on the other hand, maybe I'm just getting distracted. Don't know. At the end of the chapter, Jacob described their efforts to convert the Lamanites to the gospel, but it says, they delighted in wars and bloodshed. Now, with that phrasing again, I can't help but wonder, if there were only two small groups of people and one of them delighted in wars and bloodshed, how many people could have there been in the other group? After a few successful Lamanite campaigns of wars and bloodshed, there probably wouldn't have been many Nephites left. And if their wars were unsuccessful, I doubt they would have said that they delighted in bloodshed. Again and again, it seems that Lehi's descendants were not alone, but they were instead part of a larger population. Anyway, that gets us through the end of Jacob. Next time we'll meet his son Enos, which leads me to the trivia question. How old was Jacob when Enos was born? We'll need to go into the Book of Mormon, check dates, do some math, and come up with a rough estimate of, of how old Jacob was when Enos was born. If you do the math, you'll be surprised. And we'll talk about it next time. Until then. <laughs>